I'd like to have you turn to the book of Joshua, chapter 3, and look at the uh, incident of Israel's journey from Shittim to Gilgal. The prophet Micah points out that that journey of about 10 or 12 miles from the Acacia Groves where Israel was uh, encamped up on the plains of Moab to the other side of Jordan to the uh, location of Gilgal was the most significant event in the history of Israel. And Micah calls upon them to remember that, uh, that journey. Shittim was their base camp before they came into the land of Canaan. Gilgal was their base camp after they arrived in the land of Canaan. Gilgal was named because it was there that God rolled away the the reproach of Egypt. The uh, Hebrew word Gilgal is based upon a a Hebrew verb that means to roll away. It was there at that site that all the guilt, all the slavery, uh, Israel's past, all that had uh, occurred in their life, in their past history, was, uh, was rolled away. They were set free to, to serve and to possess the land. And Micah says that is the most significant journey that Israel ever took. Now let's look at that uh, 10-mile journey as it's described in Joshua chapter 3. I'm going to read the uh, chapter in entirety, in its entirety. So Joshua rose up uh, early in the morning, and he and all the sons of Israel set out from Shittim and came to the Jordan, and they lodged there before they crossed. And it came about at the end of the three days that the officers went through the midst of the camp, and they commanded the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God with the Levitical priests carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. However, there shall be between you and it a distance of about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. The text literally says three days before. You have not passed this way three days before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do miracles among you. And Joshua spoke to the priests, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over ahead of the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went ahead of the people. Now the Lord had said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. You shall moreover command the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you come to the edge of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. Then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. Now then take for yourselves twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe, and it shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off, and the waters which are flowing down from above shall stand in one heap. In other words, they will form an enormous lake. I lost my place. That the waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose... Where am I reading? Ah, verse 13, all right, verse 14. So it came about when the priests set out from their tents to cross the Jordan with the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant before the people, 
And when those who carried the ark came into the Jordan and the feet of the priests carrying the ark were plunged into the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of harvest, that the waters which were flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap a great distance away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those who were flowing down toward the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, were completely cut off, so the people crossed opposite Jericho. And the priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. You observed, I'm sure as I read, the number of times the word cross occurs. Uh, It appears eight times in chapter 3. That verb appears 11 times in chapter 4. So it's uh, obvious that the theme of chapters 3 and 4 are the, is the crossing of the, of the River Jordan. The emphasis in chapter 3 is upon the place of the ark in that crossing. The emphasis in chapter 4 is on the memorials that uh, were placed uh, both in the middle of the River Jordan and on the West Bank as reminders of the great miracle that God uh, performed there at the Jordan. Now, in a moment, I want you to try to recreate this scene, but before you do, I want you to think through some of the elements that are described in this in this chapter. The first uh, aspect of the crossing is the time element, and, and think for a moment of this phrase, three days, that ought to uh, call to mind a similar phrase that we have read in chapters 1 and 2 and now in chapter 3. In chapter 1, verse 11... Joshua commands the uh, officers of the people and gives them this word, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people saying, prepare provisions for yourself for within three days you were to cross this Jordan. So the promise was to be consummated three days from the giving of this command. The same phrase occurs in chapter 2, verse 22, that the spies departed That is, they left Rahab's house, went into the hill country, and remained there for three days until the pursuers returned. And then in chapter 3, verse 2, and it came about at the end of three days that the officers went through the midst of the camp. Now, the chronology of this, uh, of these three chapters is a little bit uh, difficult to reconstruct, but I, but this is the scheme that seems to make the most sense to me. Day one. Joshua received his marching orders from the Lord and passed it on to the commanders who then uh, commanded the people to start gathering uh, food and provisions and start packing up because within three days they would cross the uh, Jordan. That very day, that very day, Joshua sent the spies into the land of Canaan. They returned three days later or on some portion of that third day. The next day was the day uh, that's uh, described for us here in in chapter 2 when we read, Then Joshua rose early in the morning. The very next morning, Joshua got up. He had the people gather their goods and pack up their animals and start for the banks of uh, the Jordan River. That was the second day. The third day, they crossed over, which uh, is interesting to me because it tells me that the spies did not return to the camp of Israel until probably the morning of the third day, which means that Joshua was acting solely upon the word of God, not upon the report that the spies made. But more significantly is simply the phrase, three days. In three days, you will pass from Shittim, which was the last wilderness camping place, to Gilgal. Gilgal is the place where the reproach of Egypt was rolled away. 
Three days from the wilderness to the land. Now, just tuck that away in the part of your mind in which you uh, remember things forever. And uh, just hold on to that for a moment. We'll, we'll come back to that, uh, that time uh, period in a moment. The second thing I want you to notice about this uh, chapter is the predominance of the ark, the theme of the ark. We're told that uh, the ark of the covenant would precede them. It's a very significant phrase. The ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth. This is not the ark of a local God, but the God who controls all of the earth. Later on in verse 14, this is described as the ark which is the covenant. In other words, this ark represents the covenant. There's a very subtle shift in the grammar of that, of that phrase that indicates that the ark actually represents the covenant of God. Uh, they were to keep their eyes on the ark. They would learn something if they did. Now, for some of you who may not understand what the ark is and that your only uh, notion of the ark is what you, what you gain from Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, I want to tell you what that thing looked like and what it was for. Um, it was not full of demons, uh, raiders notwithstanding. It represented the presence of God in Israel. That was a unique shrine. Nothing like it in the, in, in the, in the ancient Near East. Uh, scholars of a more liberal bent will tell you that uh, other people had shrines like this. They did not, as a matter of fact. It's a little box, uh, Three and a half cubits by uh, one and a half cubits. That makes it about three and three-fourths feet by uh, two and a half feet, something like that. I have trouble measuring distances because I'm a fisherman and I... <laughs> I come home and I like 18 inches. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, it's about the size of a footlocker. Those of you who have been in the military will remember what footlockers look like. It was approximately that size. The box, so it's a container. Same words used to describe the casket that Jacob uh, was buried, or Joseph rather, was buried in. It's a box. It's a wooden box covered with gold. Had a lid on the top made out of pure gold. And uh, two cherubs, two angels, their wings overshadowed the, uh, the box. The only thing in the box, at least at this point, was the law. The two tablets of the law. It's interesting how those tablets came to be in in the uh, in the ta- in, in the ark. I, I mentioned this story a couple of weeks ago. Moses and Joshua were making their way down the side of Mount Sinai after receiving the law. Uh, Moses was carrying the clay tablets, and uh, Joshua said, "I think I hear the sound of war." Moses said, "It's worse. It's the sound of partying." They came down into the camp. There's some sort of orgiastic worship is going on. They're dancing nude around the, the golden calf. And Moses, in rage, broke the tablets as a symbol that Israel had broken the law. So God brought him back up on the mountain, repeated the, the law, gave it to him again. Moses wrote it down. And then God said, now, Moses, let me take care of the, of the tablets. If I give them to you, you'll just break them again. <laughs> Because these people are stiff-necked. They're going to do this again and again. Let me take care of the law. And so the, the tablets were placed inside the ark. And once a year, the high priest 
would sacrifice an animal. He would confess the sins of the people over the head of that animal, sacrifice the animal, take the blood into the holy place where this little box was located, sprinkle the blood on the top of that box. And that area on the top came to be known as the mercy seat or the place where mercy is found, where atonement is made, where satisfaction is done, is made for sin. Remember when we studied through Romans, the problem I mentioned that God had, if I can put it that way, how to judge sin and justify sinners. God cannot simply overlook sin, cannot say, well, boys will be boys, we'll just have to forgive them the sin. He had to do something about sin. Sin had to be reckoned with, had to be atoned for, and that's why the Son was sent to become our expiation, as John puts it, our satisfaction. And Paul also puts it the same way. So in effect, remember this is a symbol. This is a symbol. In effect, God who rested over the mercy seat between the, the cherubs would look down through that lid to the broken law and he would see the blood of the lamb. As a symbol of the time when God would look down through the blood of the lamb of God who takes away the, the sins of the world, through the Lord Jesus' sacrifice, to the broken law, and he could forgive it. Wonderful picture of our salvation. And anyone looking at the ark, understanding that principle, would come to see that the ark represents the character of God. That God is a saving, loving, redeeming Lord. He deals with, with sin. He is Savior, you see. Now, the, the ark in this passage is called the ark of the covenant. That is, it represents the faithfulness of God. The covenant made with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, his 12 sons, all the Israelites, that God would, would magnify the nation of Israel, that he would give them the land, and that through them he would bless the whole world. That's how he brought salvation to the world. The ark represents that salvation. So any Israelite looking at the ark would come to understand something of the, of the character of God. That's what the ark represented. And Israel was enjoined in this passage to keep their eyes on the ark. That's the whole point of the, of the distance. The uh, 3,000 foot, almost, or actually a little over a half mile distance from the ark. Now, if you've ever been to this part of uh, the, the land of Israel, you'll understand why this 3,000 foot separation is necessary. Some would say because of the holiness of God, and I will buy that, I understand that. But there's another reason, I believe. If you were to stand out, uh, out here on uh, Mountain View Drive and look across the, the valley, uh, it, it looks somewhat like the area uh, where this uh, event took place. There's a bench off to the east, and Israel was camped up on that bench. And it is about a half mile away. So that Israel had, uh, had the ark in view. That's the point. They saw what was going on. They watched the progress of the ark as the priests took it down toward the, uh, the Jordan River. And that's very, very important in this passage. They were able to see what was happening. And it was because they observed the miracle that they were able to understand that uh, God was going to dispossess the Canaanites, as we'll see, uh, see in a moment. The uh, other thing I'd like to point out is that Jordan was in flood time, uh, at flood stage. We're told specifically that Jordan, the Jordan overflows its banks all the days of the harvest. There are two uh, rainy periods um, in Palestine, one in the spring, one in the fall. And at that particular time of the year, the Jordan is in the flood stage. The 
period of the harvest. The, uh, the rains up in Lebanon, way up to the north, force the river into flood stage. Also, you have a number of tributaries that come down from the east, from the high country of Moab. What used to be Moab today is Jordan, the Yarmouk and the Jabbok and all these, these vast wadis. Those of you that have taken the trip from Amman, Jordan, down across the Allenby Bridge have seen that enormous cl- uh, uh, valley on the right. You follow the road right down the uh, Jabbok. And the water roars down that wadi and flows into the Jordan River. And again, to use the analogy of, of the city of Boise, it would look somewhat as a floodplain. And if the dam up here were to break and you happen to be standing up on high ground looking, and the whole area of Garden City was flooded from the first bench all the way across to the mountains on the other side, the foothills where the uh, highlands, uh, that subdivision is, you'd have some idea of what they were looking at. The Jordan normally is a very placid stream. You can ford it in a number of places. It's only about waist deep, and there are sandbars that you can ford it. But there were no bridges in those days. And in the spring and in the fall, when the rains occurred, there was absolutely no way to get across. It was it was impassable. No one would think of trying to cross it. You wouldn't even launch a boat into that torrent because there were trees and limbs and trash and and debris all over the place, and it roared through there. And that was the situation they were, they were faced with. They were standing up on the bench, looking down at that, uh, at that river, and no one knew what God was going to do. All they had was the sheer word of God, that he was going to get them from Shittim to Gilgal. That's all they knew. Now, the other thing I'd like to, uh, like to have you observe is verse 10. Joshua said, by this, by what? By the passage through the Jordan. You shall know that the living God is among you. Contrast to the dead and dying gods of the Canaanites. By this you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will assuredly dispossess you. That is, he uses there the strongest assertion that can be used in, in, in the Hebrew language. Dispossessing, he will dispossess. It's the same idiom that you find in, in Genesis 2. Dying, or Genesis 3. Dying, you shall die. You shall surely die. So just as certain as death and taxes, you shall assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, the Jebusite, all these folks that lived in the land of Canaan. No question about it. And this is how you'll know. So just stand still, he says, and wait and see what the Lord is going to do. All right, those four elements I want you to keep in mind. Now let's try to envision this, this day, this morning. This is the morning of the third day. First day the revelation was given to Joshua that they would pass across the uh, River Jordan in three three days. The second day they packed up, moved down toward the banks. The third day they got up and uh, they looked across the river and the whole thing looked like you know, it was impossible. They had doubters, skeptics among them. We know that. They're just a normal mix of people. There were some that were men and women of faith and there were some who were not. And they were standing up on the bank Sun's rising over the hills behind them, and this time of the year is a lot of mist and fog, and they were looking across uh, to the other side. They could see the walls of Jericho. There's a long alluvial slope from the Jordan River all the way up to uh, what's called Jebel Quaratal, the, the mountain behind Jericho, and, and uh, they could see Jericho up on that slope, and as a matter of fact, the Jerichoites could see them. They could look down into the, Jer- into the Jordan and, and see them camped on the other side, and they could look up to the ridge 
There's a, a north-south ridge that guards the interior of the, the land of Canaan, and they could see the mountains behind Jericho, and they could think of the Girgashites and, the, and all the folks that, that lived up in there, the Jebusites that inhabited the city of Jerusalem back then. And they're just like they're just normal folks like us. And you have to realize this was not a light expeditionary force. You know, they weren't launching a few uh, rubber rafts and... And these weren't soldiers that were expected to swim across. You know, they were men and women and, and children and dogs and cats and canaries and bicycles and big wheels and, and uh, port-a-cribs. And, and you know that little kids and water don't mix. I, I took my grandson fishing yesterday, and the kid fell in the lake twice. <laughs> Not once, but twice. I had to fish him out of the out of the lake. You know, that's kids, you know, and, and you have to get all these kids across this raging torrent. How in the world are you going to do this? They were all gathered up there watching this thing, and priests picked up the ark and put it on their shoulders, probably four of them. They, there were rings on the side of the, uh, of the ark, and they ran staves through the rings, and they put it on their shoulders. There was a prescribed way of carrying it, covered it with a blue cloth, and they started down the slope. Toward this river. Continued to flow. You could hear the roar from where you were standing. They, they, they 100 feet from the river, still flowing, still raging, right down to the edge, 10 feet. And they put their foot in the water, and the water's fled. That's what Psalm 114 says. Now, some would say there's landslide up above, and and the waters receded gradually from itself. I don't. I don't think so, because that would. That, this. This was such a remarkable miracle. This really got their attention. The priests put their foot in the water, and incidentally, this takes a considerable amount of faith just to keep marching right into the river. Put his foot right into the river, and they walked across on dry land. The river receded 19 miles upstream. That's where Adam is. And you stop and think about the extent of this miracle. There are a lot of things that aren't obvious at first reading, but you know, here are these uh, streams that flow down from the east. There are hardly any streams of any size flowing from the west, but from the east, from the high country of today, what, uh, the country today of Jordan, these streams still are raging torrents this time of the year. They were flowing down from the east. All the tributaries that flow into the Jordan, something had to stop those as well. So that when the priest stepped into the water, the waters immediately receded. They were cut off. The waters below fled down into the Dead Sea, some four or 500 feet lower than... They were about 800 feet below sea level at this point. And the waters up above receded rapidly, and there was a vast lake formed near Adam, and they walked across on, on dry ground. Chapter 4 says they hurried across. Now, I don't think it's because they were afraid. I've, I've seen some of... Uh, some of Hollywood's uh, representations of this event and the water's quivering over here on the side, you know, and that would frighten me to death. They couldn't even see the water. I mean, it was gone. They hurried across because they were so excited. You think a roar didn't go up when they saw those waters flee? They, they were standing on the bank. Saying, Are they going to do it? Are they going to do it? And all of a sudden, and a roar went up like uh, the roar that went up last night in Bronco Stadium. The last 44 seconds of the game. They started pounding each other on the back. 
pandemonium broke loose and they went running down those slopes across to the other side and nobody even got wet. It was a miracle. Absolute miracle. And Joshua says by this that you'll know that God is going to dispossess the Canaanites. In other words, just keep your eye on the ark. Just watch the ark. Follow the ark. And, and the Israelites in watching the ark could say, He did it. God did it. Therefore, I can't. They realized that that ark was, you know, there's nothing magic about the ark. That wasn't just a box that they worshipped. That box represented the, the presence of God in their midst. That's what he says. Now you'll know that the living God is in your midst. And they ran down that slope saying, God did it. I can do it. I can do it. Now, I, I pondered this thing, thought about it all week, thought about what it meant to me. This happened a long time ago, 1400 B.C., something like that, at least that long ago. What's the significance of it for us? Well, I, I was thinking about the symbolic significance of the land. The land of Canaan represents all that God has in store for us once we come to know him. It's a, it's a symbolic representation of all of our possessions in Christ. Peter says that God has given to us all things that pertain into life and godliness. We already have it. We're fighting a battle that's already won. It's all the good things that God wants to bestow upon us because we've made Christ Lord. But we have to take every inch of it. And sometimes it's by bloody battle. You have to, you have to possess what you already possess. You're fighting a battle that's already won, but nevertheless, you have to fight a battle. It's a struggle. It's a spiritual struggle against principalities and powers, as, as Paul puts it. Canaan represents what we have in, in Christ. The Canaanites represent all the enemies of our Lord and the en- enemies of our soul. The world, the flesh, and the devil. That's the way the New Testament puts it. The flesh is... Our own human selfishness. It's what we're, we're born with the flesh. It's our independent streak. It's our penchant for going it alone and, and being our own, uh, God and running our own life and setting our, uh, charting our own course. It represents our tendency to, uh, make ourselves look better at others' expense. Our materialism, our lust for power, our greed, all the things that make us unhappy and, and make everyone around us unhappy. That's that's the flesh. The world is uh, just the flesh writ large. It's a community of flesh-governed people who live that way and work that way and operate that way. They hit us from all sides. It's our culture. It's our society that's self-governed, self-ruled, autonomous uh, world. The devil, of course, is the one who's behind it all. He's the real enemy. His sin was pride in the beginning, and he tries to infect all of us with pride. Those are the enemies of our soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And uh, they've been uh, vanquished on the cross. He defeated principalities and powers, but we still have to do battle with them. We're fighting a battle that's won, but we still have to battle. We still have to fight. The Jordan represents uh, those enormous obstacles that we come across from time to time that, that lie across the our, across the way when, when we want to possess everything that we have in Christ. And initially, it, it represents our salvation before you can get into land. 
you have to know about God's salvation and you have to follow him through that great act of salvation that he accomplished on the cross. And I, I couldn't help but uh, think of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, in his word in Hebrews 12, looking unto Jesus. Picture yourself up on, the, up on that bench, looking down toward the Jordan, looking at the ark. Looking unto Jesus, the author. And the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. That's how you got in. It's because he got in first. He led the way. He's the author of our salvation. And the only way we could ever get into the land of Canaan is because he opened the way for us. He went down into the chilly waters of Jordan and the cross and he died and he was buried. And on the third day. He rose again. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that his gospel, uh, uh, the, the gospel he preached was that Jesus died and was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. What scriptures? The Old Testament. It's the only scripture Paul had. You can ransack the Old Testament from beginning to end. You'll not find one explicit prophecy that Jesus would rise from the dead in three days. It's there in, in, a, in, a, in subtle uh, expressions, intimations, uh, stories that, that uh, underscore the idea of three days. Little symbolic references that indicate that the third day is the resurrection day. It was the day on which our Lord broke out of the other side of Jordan and made a way for us. He went through first. So we can get in. On everything that God has for us. There isn't any other way. That barrier is impassable. You cannot get in on the good things of God. Unless you go the way by which our Lord went. As Paul puts it in Romans 6. We have to be identified with him. In his death. In his burial. and his resurrection. And when we enter into that death. And resurrection. The old life's cut off. Our, and it becomes our Gilgal, the reproach of the past. The guilt, the sin, the blame, the memories, the habits, all of that, you see, is rendered null and void. Now, on the other side. But what you need to understand is that our Lord has faced everything that we have to face. You understand that? Our Lord has faced everything that you have to face. In a sense, the last temptation has some truth in it, a great deal of truth, if you think seriously about, about the message. I'm actually thinking of Cousin Saka's book more than Scorsese's version of it, but, but Cousin Saka's was right when he said that our Lord was tempted in all respects, as we are, because that's what Scripture says. He was, he was the God-man. He was God. I don't deny that. He was fully God, but he was also fully man. That's mystery. I can't explain it. But he incorporated in his person the uh, full deity and full humanity. He was fully man, which meant he has gone through every experience you and I have to go through. He has faced it first. And we can fix our eyes upon him and gain courage to go through whatever we have to face because he has gone first. And he conquers principalities and powers, not on the basis of his deity, 
Because he said very clearly in John 6, I don't do anything of myself. He never acted out of his deity. He always acted as a man fully dependent upon God. And he faced principalities and overcame them. And therefore, I can. I can. Let me give you some examples. Some of you have been called to live without a spouse for one reason or another. Perhaps you never married, or perhaps your spouse left you this last year or died, and at least for the foreseeable future, you have been called to live without a spouse. That's very hard. It's very hard, particularly to raise children as a single parent. You see, our Lord has gone first. He never married. He knew what it was like to experience lonely nights. And the frustration of having no one who was really close to him that he could that he could share his love with. He knew what it was like. I have a good friend who told me just this last week. He said, you know, it's, the nights are tough. So I sit around at home. His wife just left him recently. So I sit around at home and I start thinking, I think I ought to get out there and see what's happening. And he knows that if he starts hitting bars that he's going to be in big trouble. And so he just has to stay home. But he doesn't feel sorry for himself and neither did our Lord. When people tried to feel sorry for our Lord, he said to them, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. He was concerned about them. He could live as a single person and live triumphantly. He did it. So can you. You can live without sex. Did you realize that? I have a good friend who, before he was a Christian, was homosexual when he became a believer he realized that he could not continue to live that lifestyle, and so he, he dropped all of his homosexual activity. And, but he has no interest in the opposite sex. He's told me a number of times that I've prayed and prayed that God would give me some interest in, in, in women. He said, I just don't. I don't have any interest. And so I have, I have come to the conclusion that God wants me to live a sexless existence. But he doesn't feel sorry for himself. He's using his life and his time to serve. If you're in a situation like that, would you understand that our Lord was there too? He lived a sexless existence. And he served. And he did not feel sorry for himself. He went first. You can follow. Our Lord left home. You may have to leave mother and father and go overseas and serve. He went first. You may be called to a life of poverty. You'll never make it big. Our Lord never had two coins to rub together. He had to borrow a coin to make it to use an illustration, use it as an illustration. He didn't have any money to pay his taxes. He had to catch a fish or have Peter catch a fish to pay his taxes. He didn't even have a home. He said, Foxes have homes. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. But he didn't feel sorry for himself. He went first. You can follow. And one of these days, you and I are going to face the really toughest test of all, probably the greatest of the principalities and powers, and that's death. And we're going to stand, as the hymn writer puts it, on the verge of, of Jordan, and we're going to be anxious. I, I saw that in my father. He, he's one of the toughest men I've ever known. But when he had to face death, he was, he was frightened. And we all will be. 
But you don't have to pass Jordan, cross Jordan alone. Do you realize that? Our Lord didn't want to die either. He, that's, that was his prayer. In the garden, Lord, if there's any other way, spare me. But there wasn't any other way. So he faced death. He faced it boldly and courageously. You can too. You can too. He went first. You can follow. The, uh, the hymn writer put it this way, When I tread the verge of Jordan... Bid my anxious fears subside, death of death and hell's destruction. Land me safe on Canaan's side. He's already done it. So can you. Uh, last uh, Christmas I was in San Francisco and I had an opportunity to hear Brennan Manning speak. And uh, he, he related a story of a friend of his, uh, un godly sort of a fellow who'd had no use for spiritual things all of his life, discovered he had cancer, and and suddenly became interested in spiritual things, and Manning led him to Christ as a result. And they were talking one day in, in uh, in his room. He was at home at the time, and and uh, uh, he, he was explaining he didn't know how to pray. He said, I've never been to church. I don't, I don't have any religious words. I don't know how to pray. So what I, I had my daughter put a chair, an empty chair, right here by the bed. And I just, I pretend that Jesus is sitting in that, in that chair. And when I get frightened, particularly in the middle of the night, when I'm afraid to die, I, I talk to Jesus in that chair. And a couple of days later, Manning came by to see him and discovered he had died the, the evening before the morning. That, that very morning, actually. And he was talking to the man's daughter, and she said, you know, I, I came into the room, and he was gone. He'd gone home. and But he had the most peaceful look on his face, and he said, you know, the strangest thing was that he had his head on the chair next to the bed. So you don't have to cross Jordan alone. Our Lord has preceded you. All we have to do is follow. I don't know what, what you're going to be called upon to do. I don't know what actions you'll be called upon to make this coming week. All I know is that our Lord is a living God. He lives among us and he's gone first. All you have to do is follow. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for this reminder again of of the great apostle of our faith, the Lord Jesus, the one who was sent first, who not only announced the message, but who lived it 24 hours a day, who faced all the the foes that we have to face, the doubt, the fear, the frustrations, the feelings of weakness and limitation, who knew what it was to be lonely who knew what it was to feel impotent and at the end of his tether. And we simply thank you that that he's there and he's gone through those experiences and we can follow knowing that that we we can conquer, overwhelmingly conquer in him. We want to be reminded again and again as we look at, uh, at this book that we are fighting a battle that's already won. When, when it appears that we're going to be overwhelmed, we want to be reminded that your grace is sufficient for us. And we want to follow you through life and face it as you faced it 
in reliance upon the Father. We ask that we would do so in your name. Amen.